A quick warning. This podcast contains adult language and deals with themes that include sexual assault. There's also a story that involves a 16-year-old sex worker. This person may or may not have been trafficked. And despite whatever truth, circumstances, or legalities exist behind that story, if you or someone you know are a victim of sexual exploitation or human trafficking, there are resources to get help. A great one is the Human Trafficking Hotline, which you can call at 188-373-7888. You can also visit their website at humantraffickinghotline.org. Now on to the show. The year was 1998, and TriStar Pictures, which is now known as Sony, had a Godzilla-sized problem on their hands. The movie studio had spent $150 million on a remake of the 1954 classic Japanese monster film Godzilla. Written by Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, and directed by the latter, the film was supposed to be a massive hit. After all, only two years earlier, the filmmaking duo had ruled the box office with the Will Smith alien invasion thriller Independence Day. Welcome to Earth. But as anyone who has actually seen the 1998 Godzilla remake could tell you, the film was at best forgettable, and at worst, complete and total trash. Fortunately for the studio, their marketing team was kicking things into overdrive. They plastered the nation with billboards touting the enormous size of Godzilla's body parts, including their foot, leg, and tail, with a sexually suggestive tagline, Size Does Matter. They also tapped a deep bench of heavy hitters, media partners to help promote the film. This included Gidget, the talking chihuahua, more commonly known as the multimedia marketing phenomenon, the Taco Bell dog, to do a series of TV spots intended to sell both the movie and the fast food chain at the same time. Welcome to Taco Bell. Can I take your order? Uh, let's see. 700 Mexican pizzas and one of those new gorditas. Hey, Godzilla, want something to drink? <laughs> They even got Sean Puff Daddy Combs and Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page to collaborate on a soundtrack cut titled Come With Me, a song that had absolutely nothing to do with Godzilla or the movie in any way whatsoever. But to help round out this multimedia promotional blitz that included billboards, TV, and the radio, the 1998 Godzilla marketing team added something few studios thought to do before then, the internet. And to do this, they recruited one of the internet's first celebrities. This person was someone who was in many ways to that medium, what Puff Daddy and the Taco Bell dog were to theirs. A webmaster by the name of Harry J. Knowles. On this episode of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, we will dive into the controversy I call Godzilla Gate, the second real-life version of Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, and the conclusion of Ain't It Cool News' test screening review saga. All of this and more, so let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Episode 3, Almost Famous. In Cameron Crowe's semi-autobiographical film Almost Famous, 
Actor Patrick Fugit plays William Miller, a high school kid who dreams of becoming a rock music journalist. And like writer-director Cameron Crowe, William gets the chance to travel all over the country while working on a story for Rolling Stone magazine. William is on assignment to write about a rock group called Stillwater, a fictional band that is a composite of the Allman Brothers, Led Zeppelin, the Eagles, and Leonard Skinner, among other bands that Cameron Crowe wrote about in real life at the same age. One of the very best scenes in Almost Famous happens when William watches the members of Stillwater partying poolside at a random hotel. While trying to interview Russell Hammond, the band's lead guitarist played by Billy Crudup, William gets interrupted mid-question. Russell then asks William to put his tape recorder down. When William complies, Russell says, Look, uh, fuck. I trust you, so I'm just gonna lay this right on you. Just make us look cool. <laughs> I will quote you warmly and accurately. Well, that's what I'm worried about. But some of the stuff that happens, it's good for a few people to know about as opposed to, say, a million people. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Well, I see you're dangerous. You see everything. Most people, they're just waiting to talk. But you listen. The scene is great because it reveals the power that journalists can have when they are honest. Hammond who at the very least thinks he's on his way to becoming a god of rock and roll, is essentially begging this high school kid to write positive things about him. This scene is a huge reason why so many of the people who wrote for the once powerful movie news website, Ain't It Cool News, loved Almost Famous. For writers like C. Robert Cargill, who wrote for the website for years under the pseudonym Massaworm, this story about a young, inexperienced journalist who gets in way over his head feels close to their own experiences, in part because they too spent chunks of their lives flying all over the country and encountering celebrities. Celebrities who wanted nothing more than to exploit the influence that these people had. A lot of us talk about Almost Famous being a touchstone for us. We all had that moment where we were hanging out with cool people who have done things that we admired, who then turned to us at one point in time and just said, hey, man, just make us look cool. Like all of a sudden, you we all, all of us that were there at the time had that moment where the wool was lifted from our eyes and we realized we were the product and that people were being nice to us, not because they thought we were cool necessarily, but because of what we could do for them. Robert was working as a waiter and a video store clerk when he started writing for Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News. He says that one of the most surreal experiences that very much mirrored Almost Famous happened one time when he traveled to Los Angeles for a set visit on director Roger Avery's vastly underrated 2002 film, The Rules of Attraction. Several of the movie's cast members invited Robert to hang out with them at a Velvet Rope bar in West LA. And while he was just chilling at the bar, Robert bumped into someone he didn't expect. Um, and all of a sudden, my elbow is getting nudged by this big, beefy guy sitting next to me who's, you know, inches away from me and keeps bumping me with his elbow. And I turn to see who this asshole is, and it's Vin Diesel. And I look and I go, oh, oh, hey, Vin. He goes, oh, sorry, man. I said, hey, man, I'm Massive Worm. He goes, oh, Massive Worm, dude, I love your shit. And I, I knew that he was a reader, so I just introduced myself by my name. I normally didn't do that, but, but all of a sudden, he's like, hey, man, can I get you a beer? And all of a sudden, I'm sitting drinking with Vin Diesel. Grabbing a beer with Vin Diesel, just as the actor's celebrity had been solidified by movies that included Pitch Black and The Fast and the Furious, would have been a surreal moment for anyone. But this was especially true for someone who, days ago, was working a shift at a video store. But as if that experience were not crazy enough, 
Shortly after that, Robert runs into Vince Vaughn. You know, Vince Vaughn is there and he walked up and he's, hey man, we met like in Austin, right? Like you're one of those ain't it cool guys, right? I was like, yeah. He goes, you're Quint, right? <laughs> no, no, I'm Mass Weber. He's like, right, right, dude. And hung out and chatted with me for a while. Like we were part of the scene, but we were, because we didn't live in Hollywood, we were alienated from the scene. So we were these weird pseudo celebrities to celebrities. As for the person named Quint that Vince Vaughn was asking about, that was actually a person at Ain't It Cool News who resembled the fictional William Miller the most, Eric Vespi. Eric worked as a writer and eventual managing editor at Ain't It Cool News for nearly two decades and first started work for the site when he was still in high school. Raised by a single mother who worked multiple jobs to keep the bills paid, Eric spent a lot of time with a babysitter. I must have been about two and uh, my mom was working a, a night shift and had uh, so we had a babysitter and the babysitter had me on her lap and I fell asleep and she decided to watch Poltergeist and I woke up right in the middle of Poltergeist whenever the coffins are coming up out of the ground and Craig T. Nelson screaming and Joe Beth Williams screaming and like the coffin door opens and the air is blowing and it's all very big that's my first memory of life that's not like my first movie memory that's my first memory of life so movies have been with me uh, you know and just like part of my DNA since then Eric's love for movies only grew from there in high school, he wrote for a student newspaper. The paper had a rule that prevented freshmen from writing for the newspaper until they finished an introductory course on journalism. Eric got around this barrier by landing major interviews with celebrities he toured through Austin, Texas for concerts and events. This included Mike Judge, the creator of TV's King of the Hill and Beavis and Butthead, as well as the movie Office Space, and David Prowse, the actor who played Darth Vader. But Eric's first interview was with none other than legendary comedian George Carlin, who was performing a show in Austin that year. Something else I don't understand, motivation tapes, motivation books. What happened here? Suddenly everybody needs to be motivated? It's a fairly simple thing. Either you want to do something or you don't. What's the big mystery? Besides, if you're motivated enough to go to the store to buy a motivation book, aren't you motivated enough to do that? So you don't need the book. Put it back. Tell the clerk, fuck you, I'm motivated. I'm going home. I'm going home. Eric landed this interview by hanging out after the show and talking to George's manager, a man by the name of Jerry Hamza. Two weeks later, George actually called, ready to answer his questions. Here's where the story gets funny. To conduct this interview with the setup he had at the time, Eric talked to George on one landline in his house, while his mother was on another phone line, carefully holding the receiver next to a mini tape recorder so that Eric could capture the entire conversation. Yeah, this is my first interview of my life, was George Carlin at age 14. And, uh, and I told him I was nervous and I hoped I didn't fuck it up, essentially, is what I said. George then gave Eric sage advice that every nervous or self-doubting 14-year-old kid needs to hear. Yeah, his sage advice was, uh, I found if you go through life not giving a fuck, you find yourself a happier person. So I, I, I'm sure he must have been like, what the fuck is this kid doing? He's, I guess it's easier when, when it's a kid making the ask, even if I was like, you know, kind of this rotund, goofy, deep voiced, awkward, you know, uh, kid. Uh, but no, he it was incredibly gracious. He didn't have to do that. According to former Anit Cool News writer Drew McWeenie, a.k.a. Moriarty. It's this quality that allows Vespi to really engage and even endear himself with many of the filmmakers he interviewed when he started working for Ain't It Cool News at the age of 16. I think Eric's very good at what he does. It, it is the great version of what the Chris Farley show sketch was, where Eric loves these things, loves them. So when he sits down with somebody, Eric has no filter for that love. You remember in uh, Something Wild when uh, Melanie Griffith had you handcuffed to the bed? Remember that? Yeah. And 
you, you had to make that phone call, remember? And you were chained to the thing and you couldn't get away. Yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. You just heard a clip from the Chris Farley show, a sketch that Chris Farley did frequently on Saturday Night Live, where he played a fictional cringe-inducing version of himself while interviewing celebrities like Jeff Daniels. But according to Drew, the big difference between the fictional Chris Farley the late actor portrayed in his sketches versus Drew's colleague Eric Vespi is that Vespi found a way to make the sheer joy he found in people's work disarming instead of awkward. His, his conversation with people, they, they get deep very quickly because they realize they're, they're in a really safe place and that Eric gets it and that he wants to talk about the nuts and bolts and that he'll go as deep as they'll let him. You might be wondering why I'm spending so much time detailing the origin and talents of a high school journalist. The reason is because as far as writers for Ain't It Cool News are concerned, you could argue that other people might have been better. But no one at Ain't It Cool News was more dedicated. Eric Vespi would stay on at Ain't It Cool News for nearly two decades, through thick and most definitely through thin. Harry Knowles might have been the face of Ain't It Cool News, but Eric Vespi was most certainly the website's heart. As for how this high school kid first joined the team of Ain't It Cool News, Eric had seen Harry around town in Austin, Texas a few times before he found out about the website. Then the two of them had a fateful first meeting while attending the Quentin Tarantino Film Festival, which we spoke about in the previous episode of this series. And he noticed that I was the only person outside of his friend circle that stayed for the all-night horror marathon and showed up to be at the midnight or the uh, kitty matinee the next morning. Um, and so he was like, hey, man, I, I do these backyard movie things. If you like this QT fest, you know, I have a 16 millimeter projector and I project movies for my friends and we cook up brisket and, you know, we, we have a party. It's like, why don't you come to some one of these? And so he like got my phone number and and uh, gave me his phone number. And, you know, this is back, you know, before everybody had email and it was that was the way to get in touch with people. From that point on, the teenage Eric was a permanent fixture in Harry Knowles crew. Harry would often brag about taking Eric under his wing. And when Harry learned of Eric's work for his high school newspaper, specifically the interview that Eric did with the actor who played Darth Vader, he convinced Eric to begin working for Ain't It Cool News under the pseudonym Quint. Quint, of course, being the name of Robert Shaw's shark hunter character from the Steven Spielberg classic, Jaws. I'll catch this bird for you, but it ain't gonna be easy. It's bad fish. It's not like going down the pond chasing bluegills or tommy cops. Former Ain't It Cool News editor-in-chief operating officer Paul Alvarado Dykstra, a.k.a. RoboGeek, was initially baffled to learn that Eric, a high school kid, would become a major part of the website's team. No experience, like no training, limited education, but he put in the work and he grew tremendously. And I remember early on being like, what is this high school kid? doing and why is he in meetings and discussions when I've got a degree and I'm a professional marketing professional and a journalism degree and so initially I was kind of like who is this kid shortly after Eric finished high school Harry put him on the payroll we'll explore this more in a later episode but it's important to note how rare it was that Eric actually got paid for his work at ain't it cool news because of the dozens of people I've talked to who work for the site almost none of them got paid so why did Harry make an exception for this kid who was barely out of high school Here's what Harry had to say about Vespi in his book, Ain't It Cool. He is tenacity multiplied. He keeps me tapped into the high school crowd. And even though he's half my age, he's an old soul. That's why I gave him the name Quint from Jaws. I should mention that Eric has a different recollection as for how he got his pid name for the site. First thing I sent him, 
I said, like, Jaws is my favorite movie, so I'd be happy with either Quint, Brody, or Hooper, you know, if you want to call me any of those. And he picked Quint because then he could make a crusty semen joke every time he introduced me. In our last episode, Harry and his writers Drew McQueenie and Joe Hallenbeck were establishing Ain't It Cool News both on the burgeoning World Wide Web as well as the power circles of Hollywood by running reviews from test screenings of unfinished, unreleased movies. This renegade practice was cited by Warner Brothers for the bad pre-release hype that crashed the domestic box office for Batman and Robin. On the same note, this practice also helped James Cameron's Oscar-winning mega-blockbuster Titanic become a huge success. So studios are still not sure what to do with this elephant in the room, a literal red-headed stepchild who is working beyond the predetermined script of Hollywood's marketing and publicity machine. Kimberly Orozowski, a media studies professor who attended the University of Texas at Austin around the time the Ain't It Cool News was establishing itself in the world of filmmaking, remembers how immediately important the site had become. What that site did is it gave a voice, and a, a very channeled voice, for fanboy culture to really say, this is what we like and this is what we don't like. These are the things we want to see. These are the things we don't want to see. And Hollywood executives and stars and producers um, went to that site every single day, multiple times a day. According to an article that Kimberly wrote that was published in the Journal for Film and Video in 2012, Ain't It Cool News had grown to a daily site traffic of 167,000 visitors per day. In comparison, the Hollywood trade publication Variety had a daily print circulation of only 30,000. Sure, the number of film industry professionals who read Ain't It Cool News was rivaled, if not exceeded, by the number of internet movie fans. But for Lewis Black, the editor of the Austin Chronicle and co-founder of South by Southwest Festival, it was the website's ability to connect industry professionals directly to the fans that made Ain't It Cool News so unique. What he really did was he got the fans in the industry to interact with the fans outside, and it changed everything. With Harry, after a fairly short period of time, Everybody in the industry wanted to know about Harry. Everybody was reading the site. If there is one film that truly symbolizes the love-hate relationship that Hollywood had with Harry Knowles and his website, it would have to be Paul Verhoeven's sci-fi satire of America's love with the military-industrial complex, Starship Troopers. Look, when you vote, you are exercising political authority. You're using force. And force, my friends, is violence. The supreme authority from which all other authority is derived. Uh... My mother always said violence never solves anything. Really? I wonder what the city fathers of Hiroshima would say about that. Produced by Sony, the people who made Starship Troopers might not have realized this at the time, but the learning curve they endured while dealing with Harry on this film would lay out the beginnings of a template that movie studios, and ultimately most corporations, regardless of their industry, would use to harness the power of online influencers for decades to come. But before Sony and the producers of Starship Troopers ever tried to woo Harry Knowles, they had a major problem on their hands. Harry Knowles had thrown them for a loop when he released unauthorized official designs of the giant alien insect creatures from the film. What was most distressing for the filmmakers is that this happened months before the movie's release. For many of the people I interviewed for this project, including former Miami Herald film critic Rene Rodriguez, the unauthorized photos from Starship Troopers was the scoop that first introduced them to the site. I mean, I remember it vividly because I had never heard of any cool news, but they had gotten leaked art of what the aliens in Starship Troopers were going to look like. And I remember like I went on there and I was looking at these things. I was so curious. I was like, wow, this website, like, you know, like this is very impressive that they got these things. 
Incensed by this major, unauthorized leak from their big-budget film, Sony immediately hit Ain't It Cool News with a legal notice to take the designs of the movie's creatures off of their website. Harry in turn responded with a power play. He removed the JPEG of the creatures from the Starship Troopers article, only to then replace it with another JPEG, that being of the legal notice from Sony. According to Kimberly Orozowski, by making the cease and desist letter public, Harry basically encouraged the website's growing army of internet movie geeks to complain and bash the film. I'm not sure the cease and desist would have worked as well, but the fact that people are like, no, we want to see this, this makes us excited. And we're not happy that Holly was trying to take this down. Uh, I think it really helped him. And I don't know if that was his decision or if he talked with other people, but it was a brilliant move because it got a lot of people on his side. Caving to pressure from the website and his followers, Sony allowed Harry to repost the images of the giant insects on his webpage again. This about face represents a sea change in the entertainment industry. It was one of the first examples of Hollywood bowing to the raging demands and criticisms of fanboys and internet movie geeks. More than two decades later, this phenomenon would eventually culminate in the Release the Snyder Cut campaign. For media studies professor Kimberly Orozowski, this would be one of the earliest examples of convergence culture, a phenomenon coined by media scholar Henry Jenkins. In convergence culture, large media conglomerates that were once used to making top-down decisions from the comfort of their boardrooms must now grapple with a new landscape, wherein seemingly equal power is given to their audiences. These days, a studio's success depends a great deal on monitoring, controlling, and in some rare cases, bowing to the power of audiences. And in this model, the audience makes bottom-up decisions by expressing their desires, frustrations, and opinions in real time via the internet and social media. Um, it's obviously much, much bigger now with you know the growth of Instagram than it was you know, in the ain't it cool days. Uh, but that being said, I think convergence culture is really about uh, participation, about finding ways, if you're Hollywood, to harness that. Um, and as a, as a regular audience, we're finding ways to kind of try to influence culture um, in a way that you can't really been able to do prior to that. C. Robert Cargill agrees with the sentiment. He feels that in many ways, Ain't It Cool News was a smaller scale prototype of the influencer culture we have today. It's a lot like you know, you'd see with like uh, social media influencers now, where imagine you've got a social media influencer who you follow who has 3 million followers and everybody and celebrities joke around with them. And, you know, that was that was essentially being that at that time in the this in the time of the Internet. When it came to Starship Troopers, Sony's attempt to get in Harry's good graces didn't stop with rescinding their cease and desist order. The studio followed up this gesture by paying to fly Harry out to Hollywood, the first of many times this would happen, so that he could attend the movie's premiere. It was during one of these Hollywood studio-funded trips that Harry and Drew McWheeney met each other in real life for the first time. You know, I had been, I, I had been, I'd had Harry described. I knew somebody that had met Harry, um, but I went to pick him up at LAX, and I was going to drive, or at Burbank Airport, and I was going to drive him around for about a day and a half, and then he was going to go right back to this house. And uh, he was in town for a premiere. And yeah, it was a real crash course in all things Harry. And I think by the end of it, I had a real, I had a real sense of what a wild ride he was as a person. Like um, there was a lot that went on in 36 to 48 hours that I was like, I don't know about that. Um, Describe. Uh, he met up with two different people um, in Westwood who provided him with uh, bootleg prints of unreleased movies. 
One of these people ended up doing jail time for it. One of those people did not, but probably should have. Um, both of those people were involved in major piracy rings. But yeah, I, I really quickly realized there were no lines for him, that he didn't care, that as long as he got something, he would accept it from anybody, he would accept whatever the legality was. It re- there were no real moral ramifications to Harry's actions in Harry's world. Harry's willingness to accept, watch, and even review stolen, pirated films that had not been released had already become a standard operating procedure of the Ain't It Cool News. In fact, the most ironic thing about Sony flying Harry Knowles to Hollywood to attend the premiere of Starship Troopers is that he had already watched a pirated work print of the film on VHS. I know this because Harry openly admitted to doing so in his review of the film. So I contacted my spies who have infiltrated every level of power in Hollywood, and they managed to get me a print of Starship Troopers in advance. So I've watched it, and now I'm set to give you a review. So I will be immune to the inevitable earthly delights that await me in L.A. To the spies that got me this print, I salute you. Good show. Starship Troopers. The question is, why would Harry risk criminal and civil liabilities by admitting to accepting and watching stolen pirated materials, in writing no less, in part to brag about the access that Harry had, but then also so Harry could attempt to prove that while he was being wooed by big Hollywood money, he was still an outsider. We're going to revisit the issue of accepting pirated materials later, but for now, let's focus on another major conflict that Harry and his website's collaborators were engaged in. While several movie studios had no idea what to make of Harry Knowles, there was one company that did not ride the fence. This company was one of the industry's greatest power players, the National Research Group, or NRG. Co-founded by a man named Joe Farrell in 1978, NRG harnessed the power they got from hosting test screenings to strip creative control from filmmakers, specifically when test screenings went poorly. Joe Farrell hated Ain't It Cool News, because the website flagrantly encouraged test screening attendees to violate NRG's non-disclosure agreements by sharing their opinions well in advance of a film's release. And it's because of this that NRG made Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News public enemy number one. The feelings were mutual among the writers of Ain't It Cool News, specifically Drew McGuinney. For Drew, both Joe Farrell and NRG were parasites on the filmmaking industry. I genuinely thought Joe was a cancer on this business. I thought he was one of the worst people working in this industry. Interesting fact. Joe Farrell actually produced a film himself. The 1987 Andrew McCarthy and Kim Cattrall romantic comedy Mannequin, which made a lot of money at the box office despite his tasteless humor that poked fun at everything from gay people to sexual assault. The film also got terrible reviews, and deservedly so. But Joe Farrell's true claim to fame was for his work on another film that came out the same year. A look that led to an evening. We were attracted to each other at the party, that was obvious. You're on your own for the night, that's also obvious. A mistake he'd regret all his life. Director Adrian Lyons' marital infidelity psychological thriller, Fatal Attraction. Unlike Mannequin, Joe Farrell did not produce this film. But through his work at NRG, he flexed his power to demand that the final act of the film be completely remade. When Joe Farrell passed away in 2011, his death made headlines in the LA Times, the New York Times, the Hollywood Reporter, and Variety. And nearly all of these obituaries start by describing Farrell as the man who turned Fatal Attraction into a great movie. 
This is an assessment that Ray Alexandra, an arts and culture writer for KQED in San Francisco, disagrees with. Did he save the movie? No, I think he ruined the movie, but I also think it would have been a less successful movie had they not changed the ending. So it depends which camp you're in. In 2018, Ray Alexandra wrote a fantastic essay about Fatal Attraction that explores its revised final act. Fatal Attraction had an original ending where Michael Douglas's character Dan was held accountable for having an affair with a neighbor named Alex, played by Glenn Close, while his wife and kids were out of town. Alex gets pregnant as a result of this tryst, and because of Dan's cruel demand that she get an abortion, Alex feels pushed over the edge. The original ending had Alex killing herself and then Dan getting arrested for her murder. And, um, you know, that kind of, if you think about what that ending would have looked like, it would have, it would have been kind of beautiful and epic and appropriately operatic. Um, and instead test audiences objected to that ending to such a great degree that they ended up reshooting it, which is where you get Dan stabbing a pregnant lady to death in a bathtub. So it wasn't originally what was supposed to happen, but it's uh, it's what we got stuck with and audiences loved it. Audiences did love the revised ending. Fatal Attraction went on to gross more than $300 million from a $14 million budget. But there was one person who had a major problem with this reshot finale, actress Glenn Close, who thought the change was a betrayal to the meaning of the story as well as her character. I fought against it for two weeks. She wasn't a, a psychopath. She was self-destructive. And I felt when I read the original script that she was a truly tragic figure. But as soon as you put a knife in her hand, all that tragedy went out the window. At the time Fatal Attraction was released to massive box office success, there were not many critics who agreed with the sentiments expressed by Ray Alexandra. After all, the film would go on to land six Oscar nominations. One major holdout, however, was Roger Ebert, who felt the revised final act was tonally and thematically inconsistent with the rest of the film. Come on, I don't want to give away the ending, don't. but you know what I'm talking about. I know. It's got a Friday the 13th ending. Mm -hmm. It's got the scene where the monster isn't really dead. It's got that ridiculous, I won't give away too much, that ridiculous, ridiculous sequence involving... Like Ebert and Ray Alexandra, Drew McWeeny felt the changes that Joe Farrell and NRG pushed on Fatal Attraction betrayed both the narrative and artistic intent of both director Adrian Lyne as well as actress Glenn Close. On top of that, Drew also felt the success of Fatal Attraction deputized Joe Farrell to engage in similar meddling with other movies many times throughout his career. And it came to a head for me as a theater manager because I worked out here as a theater manager when I first lived here. And I did, I worked test screenings constantly. Our theater was the test screening theater in LA. Jeffrey Katzenberg was in our theater twice a week. Like I had to work with these people directly. That was my first sort of hands-on job in the business where I had to really interact with, I had Woody Allen come to the screenings. I had Albert Brooks. I had all sorts of people I admired and respected that I had to one-on-one -on -one handle, Clint Eastwood. Um, and it was a real crash course in how to do that. And I watched the way Joe Farrell treated filmmakers, and I hated him. After the Batman and Robin debacle, where Ain't It Cool News was publicly blamed for the film's box office after leaking poor test screening reviews months before its release, this conflict between NRG and Ain't It Cool News was heating up. NRG made it their mission to halt these test screening reviews at Ain't It Cool News. They allegedly went as far as to hire a private investigator to dig up any dirt on Harry Knowles that they could find. Joe Farrell also had NRG add what was referred to as a Harry Knowles clause in the contract that attendees who attended test screenings had to sign. This so-called Knowles clause was designed to prevent these attendees from sharing their opinions with websites, which was ridiculous 
since test screening reviews were always cited to anonymous people who wrote under pseudonyms. Drew McWheeney and fellow Ain't It Cool News writer Joe Hallenbeck, who again asked me not to share his real name, frequently attended these screenings incognito and signed this agreement only to then violate it immediately. Here's Joe Hallenbeck. It, 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 they, they definitely started to hunker down on security. And, and, and there were times when, um, like they would have you fill out a personal uh, form. So, so I would fill out the personal form and then I would leave a note there to the people at NRG you know, signing Joe Hollenbeck or, or, or to, to Joe Farrell himself and say, hey, Mr. Farrell, you know, Joe Hollenbeck here. Thanks again for inviting me to the screening. I look forward to writing the review of, you know, six days, seven nights or whatever it was, <laughs> you know, just to be a dick. Joe Farrell and NRG put out an all points bulletin on Drew and Joe Hollenbeck, who because of their pseudonyms that they used when they wrote for the website, were still relatively unknown entities in real life. And this is the part where it feels like the team of Ain't It Cool News becomes a lot like Robin Hood and his merry men. Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest laughing back. No, not the Walt Disney Robin Hood film. Nope, not the Kevin Costner Robin Hood either. That's better. The crew of Ain't It Cool News were like the heroes of the adventures of Robin Hood, the Technicolor classic from 1938 starring Errol Flynn, one of Harry's all-time favorite movies, with Joe Farrell in NRG being cast as the Sheriff of Nottingham and his goons. According to Drew, hundreds of anonymous contributors were more than ready to take on the mantle of anonymous merry men by writing test screening reviews for Ain't It Cool News. Drew adds that more than one of those people went on to become rather successful within the entertainment industry. I was interviewing Bill Hader one time, and Bill said, looked around, closed the door, door to his trailer, and goes, all right, don't tell anybody, but uh, I was one of your spies. I used to send you test screening reviews. So I think there have been a number of people that for fun did it over the years. As Drew became more well-known and thus recognizable for his work as Moriarty, like Robin Hood, he even had to go as far as to attend these test screenings while wearing disguises. I got very versatile at disguise. Um, and I had Joe Farrell looking for me personally. Uh, there was about six months, eight months where word had come down that they were going to find me. And I knew guys working at his company. And so I was like, no, they're not. And I, I played the game really hard. So you, you talk about um, disguises. What did those disguises entail? Like, was it facial hair? Uh, um, wigs? Uh, uh, wigs. Um, glasses. Uh, I had a nose that was particularly um, effective because that's all you would look at. Um, I had friends who did some uh, who did some makeup, and I had a little bit of makeup stuff done occasionally. Um, I I was not unaware of what the consequences might be. It wasn't enough just to wear these disguises and simply review the films whilst completely undetected. Perhaps it was because of ego or youthful pride, but both Drew McWheeney and Joe Hallenbeck would taunt NRG and Joe Farrell specifically, in order to brag about how they were unstoppable. He'd be standing in line. He'd be walking up and down the line talking about trying to find me. I'd hear his conversation and I'd write it in the piece. I'd be like, hey, Joe, I heard this. And it would drive him nuts because he had no idea what I looked like. Again, going back to Errol Flynn as Robin Hood, it's easy to imagine that Drew would do things like this only to then pose with his hands on his hips and belly laugh into the clouds. <laughs> ha 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 ha
According to Drew McWeenie, this practice of driving Joe Farrell nuts while attending test screenings incognito continued for months until the day he forgot to wear a disguise. Then finally, the jig was up. When they caught me, they caught me because I was very lazy one day and I was late and I was standing in line and uh, tap, tap on the shoulder. And I turned around. It was Joe. It was two security guards and it was two guys that worked for the company. And as soon as I turned around, I have to say a word. I knew I was like busted, busted. So I just said, well, that was a good year. And then walked away. I was like done with that. In terms of reviewing test screenings, Drew McWeenie might have been taken out of the game, but there were plenty of anonymous people on the internet who are willing to step up and take Drew's place in Ain't It Cool News war against NRG. And perhaps best of all, this practice of robbing from the rich earned Ain't It Cool News respect from major artists within the entertainment industry. Here's Eric Vespi. What that was able to do was it was able to show a lot of the process and how movies would get broken down within this process, a good movie would be turned into a mediocre movie through these test screenings. And um, uh, so because of all that, like early in the site site's run, you know, uh, filmmakers, uh, Steven Soderbergh loved us for that reason. Um, John Favreau loved us for that reason. One filmmaker who publicly supported Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News for their test screening reviews was the late Ted Demi director of such films as Blow with Johnny Depp, as well as the Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence comedy Life. It's great, because I think it's shaking things up a lot, because these guys are writing, you know, early critiques on films and shaking up the test process, because you go and test a movie to 400 people that's kind of not even finished yet, and then studios make you change things based on their reactions, you know? So now you've got people that are giving you all the bad reactions that, to things that don't really apply to you, and then you've got these young guys going in that are really smart, and bright going in and writing really cool so interesting things about it. The ethics might have been debatable, but the results were this. One man by the name of Joe Farrell no longer had the power to basically dictate the creative vision of an entire industry through the filter of his personal sensibilities. Which is ironic, considering that during their highly influential run, Ain't It Cool News attempted to dictate the creative vision of the film industry as well and that the sensibilities they championed continue to dominate our culture to this very day, a concept I will explore in a later episode. As for the accusations that studios made about Ain't It Cool News' practice of running test screening reviews being unethical, Paul Alvarado Dykstra says these articles were a true victory for the site in terms of disrupting the iron-type grip that studio marketing teams had over entertainment. When it comes from a place of consumer advocacy and of being on the side of the artist, uh, I think that you can mount a pretty robust moral and ethical argument uh, for why that is a beneficial thing to do. But I think that there's a very slippery slope, especially without strict editorial journalistic structures uh, of management in place where that can be easily corrupted. Paul later adds that part of the way test screening reviews were sometimes corrupted was when studio employees would submit fake test screening reviews to the site. Uh, one of the things that we found fairly quickly is that publicists would try planting fake screening reports uh, and submitting them to try to counter the ones they knew we were getting from test screenings. And that was a, kind of a game. But what Paul and the rest of the team at Ain't It Cool News didn't realize is that Hollywood was deploying a secret weapon to counter this disruption. And the secret weapon was access. 
Whether it was authorized interviews with celebrities and filmmakers, exclusive stories, or even paid trips to the movie sets and premieres. And it's because of this that just as Anik Cool News was fighting a war against NRG, that Harry Knowles was fighting another war on a more personal level. The war for his soul. And by soul, I mean Harry's integrity as a film critic and journalist. Starship Troopers would not be the last time a studio would fly Harry out for a premiere or media event. Harry would be flown out to other Hollywood premieres, including the fourth Alien film titled Alien Resurrection and the John Tiernan directed remake of Rollerball. And even then, he still gave both of these films negative reviews. But Hollywood continued to court Harry Knowles. In his book, Harry claims that one anonymous screenwriter went so far as to reach out to Harry directly with a special offer. If Harry could write a positive review of this unproduced comedy screenplay, the screenwriter would pay Harry $20,000 cash, no questions asked. Harry claims he turned the screenwriter down. And all it takes is one person who can prove I've taken a bribe, traded a favor, scratched a back, or greased a skid, and my opinion is never again worth a Liberty dime. 20 grand isn't enough. $2 million isn't enough because if my word is for sale, then that puts me in the same line of work as every other assembly line chemist out there who processes raw information into corporate hype. The studios and filmmakers' attempts to sway and even straight up buy off Harry's objectivity as a journalist perhaps took its most insidious turn during a media event for the 1999 Universal film The Mummy, starring Brendan Fraser. I Winston! Pedal an example of mid to late 90s big studio blockbuster filmmaking, if there ever was one, The Mummy is a bright, poppy adventure romp that was a remake of the classic black and white universal horror film of the same name. But beneath that bright and glossy veneer of this new film, something dark and even sinister may have transpired. In Harry's book, he shares a story about how Universal had flown the webmaster to London to attend a fancy studio junket. For those who've never worked in the field of entertainment journalism before, a junket is essentially a media event wherein select members of the press are invited to interview the actors and filmmakers of a big upcoming movie. These events usually take place at hotels, but will occasionally transpire on the sets or locations where the movies were made. And unless a journalist works for an outlet or publication that can cover their expenses, it's almost certain that a studio is footing the bill for everything, including flights to and from the event, hotel, and a hefty per diem to cover food and beverage during their stay. And according to Harry Knowles, when he attended the junket for The Mummy, someone was ready to cover one more additional expense. It was common knowledge what hotel I was staying at because I always posted to my website in case any fans want to track me down or come by. So one night at about two in the morning, I got a call from the front desk. It was a girl who called herself Chastity who it turns out was 16 and who wanted to come up and see me. I said, it's two o'clock in the morning. Don't you think someone's liable to get the wrong idea? She said, there is no wrong idea. I'm a working girl. I said, like a prostitute? I didn't order a prostitute. And she said, oh no, sir, that's all been taken care of. I'm a gift from an admirer. Let me come up and I'll show you. Apparently, prostitutes are not only legal in the United Kingdom, but they can ply their wondrous trade at the age of 16. I told her, you know, it's not that I'm not honored, but I'm going to have to pass. According to Harry, 
This late night offer for a paid encounter with a sex worker, who was underage by US and even UK legal standards, might have been under the employ of a British tabloid, trying to get the dirt on the webmaster. But as we'll find out in a later episode, this so-called chastity could have very well been hired by a film producer. We should also not ignore the possibility that the story is a complete and total fabrication on Harry's part. However, if true, the story is a great example of the length some people went to win the webmaster's favor or potentially humiliate him. All that said, Harry did give The Mummy a mostly positive review. But before The Mummy was released, there were two films that came out almost back to back where Harry's integrity as a film reviewer took a major dive in a big way. This happened in full view of the website's followers, no less. And the reason these studios succeeded, where the contemporaries failed to at least perceivably sway the once fearsome Knowles, is because, unlike other studios, they figured out his price tag. According to Paul Alvarado Dykstra, there were a couple of studios that refused to do business with Harry Knowles and the team of Ain't It Cool News. Um, but then there were others that then started, you know, rolling out the red carpet. Uh, the, I mean, the most famous uh, and I think cringeworthy one is, is um, Sony and Godzilla. Uh, the 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 Roland Emmerich Godzilla that that like is a case study in how to play Harry. Dexter is referring to a point where the first crack in Harry's integrity as a film reviewer, the fault line, if you will, would first appear. This happened with Harry Knowles' review, or reviews rather, of the 1998 Godzilla. As was the norm before this practice was all but shut down by NRG and a majority of film studios. Harry ran a handful of early test screening reviews of the film, all of which were extremely negative. That, however, did not stop the movie's writer-producer, Dean Devlin, from inviting Harry Knowles to attend the massive premiere screening that they would be hosting for the film at Madison Square Garden. The garden was packed with 18 to 20,000 fans, with a giant screen and a high-tech sound system. In his book, Harry describes the event as being like a rock concert, he was sitting right behind the section designated for celebrities, right next to a large group of kids from a youth outreach program. And whenever Godzilla appeared on the screen, the kids would stand up on their seats and cheer. It was one of the greatest film experiences I've ever had. I don't even know how much of the film I really saw, but you just feel 20,000 fans screaming in unison at a movie it was incredible. Harry attended the after party for the screening, schmoozing with some of his all-time favorite stars, including Chow Yun-Fat, Jackie Chan, and Muhammad Ali. Allegedly, the Taco Bell dog was at the screening event as well. The experience was surreal, one which Harry was unable to parse from the movie itself, a fact which is apparent in the glowing review he filed from New York en route to LaGuardia Airport. I would share an overview or even an excerpt from Harry's glowing review of the 1998 Godzilla with you. The only problem is that I can't. The reason I can't is because it has been completely scrubbed from the internet. Why? Most likely because when regular moviegoers went to see the film with high expectations based on Harry Knowles' review, they savaged him for it. After all, unlike Harry, they did not have the privilege of watching the film with 20,000 screaming fans while schmoozing with Muhammad Ali and the Taco Bell dog. Perhaps in a bout of damage control, Harry tried to remedy this situation by reviewing the film again. And with that review, he shared an assessment that mirrors the experience that most people had at the time. First off, I'd like to apologize to anyone that went because of my review. As I watched it today, it was as if I had machine gunned innocent people from a helicopter. I felt bad, like I might have contributed to lost hours and lives. Even with the second review, 
apology and all, the fans of the site continued to call Harry a sellout. Paul Alvarado Dykstra remembers this as a particularly devastating moment for the reputation of Ain't It Cool News, which had only just been minted one year prior during the site's war with Warner Brothers and Batman and Robin. That was a real tragedy. Uh, and I think that that was also a turning point in terms of really undermining any moral high ground or um, high horse that, that Ain't It Cool could pretend to be on in terms of setting a different, higher standard. It would be one thing if this was a one-off, a singular lapse from a relatively inexperienced journalist and film critic. But almost immediately after this happened, studio execs offered to fly both Harry and his father to stay at a Walt Disney World resort in Orlando. The reason they wanted to do this? So that Harry could attend the gala premiere screening of the Michael Bay asteroid film Armageddon at the Kennedy Space Center. And here's where being a traditional media outlet, like a newspaper, could have helped Harry. If he had an editor or publisher to provide guidance and oversight, they would have probably advised Harry to lay low. To turn down the offer to fly down to the Kennedy Space Center on the studio's dime. Or at the very least, if he were to accept the trip, to not review the film in order to avoid so much as even the perception of bias. After all, Harry's sight was not for lack of reviews of the film. Several of his regular contributors, including Joe Hallenbeck, had delivered takes on the film, ones which were quite scathing and negative. Despite all these facts, when Harry got this offer for a free trip to yet another gimmicky, celebrity-packed premiere screening, he foolishly accepted. According to Paul Alvarado Dykstra, who had a much greater understanding of professional and journalistic ethics after his training in college, when anyone voiced these objections, Harry would hear none of it. That to me was like, well, okay, Harry's going to be Harry. Um, he's not going to accept any editorial oversight or governance. Um, that's his domain. And that's his prerogative. That's his choice. Harry never had a real job, much less finished college. So uh, I was sympathetic to the fact that like, okay, he, we do not have the same shared experience. Um, he doesn't have the same context or frame of reference. But Harry not only accepted the trip to the Armageddon premiere, he also reviewed the film as part of an enormous 3,200-word starstruck travelogue, more than half of which was devoted to describing how amazing it was to be part of this celebrity-packed event. Harry name-dropped every celebrity in attendance. Cuba Gooding Jr., Aerosmith, Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, Gwyneth Paltrow, fucking Coolio, and the list goes on and on. To complete this coup de grace of self-sabotage, Harry even gave shout-outs to how awesome his hotel was. He then went on to brag about the fact that he and his father were given amazing seats from which to watch the entire film. Then came the review, which was a complete and absolute rave. I can't understand not loving this film. Whether or not Harry could understand why people didn't love this film, the fact is, there were lots of people who didn't. Of the 122 film critics who reviewed the film on Rotten Tomatoes, 62% of them gave the movie a bad review the most scathing of which came from film critic Andrew Saris. Writing for the New York Observer, Saris said, quote, I must confess that at times I found myself rooting for the meteor to hit the earth and put us all out of our misery, end quote. To Harry's credit, the movie Armageddon has its fans. The Michael Bay film was even included as part of the Criterion Collection, a home video publisher devoted to commemorating important classics and contemporary films. But if Harry's goal was to be a champion for the embattled Armageddon, his choice to do so after accepting the trip to a Walt Disney World resort from the studio who made the film could not have been more poorly received. Fans of the site who hated the film eviscerated Harry for it. They called him a sellout yet again. 
They also accused him of accepting bribes. And after the very recent debacle surrounding Harry Knowles' review of Godzilla, it was next to impossible for him to defend himself. For former Miami Herald film critic Rene Rodriguez, it was this review of Armageddon which spelled the death of critical objectivity for Ain't It Cool News, or at the very least, Harry Knowles. What ruined Harry, aside from what we know today, um, was when filmmakers started and studios started cozying up to him uh, for positive coverage, and he fell for it. Even Eric Vespi, Harry's high school mentee, who had virtually no formal training in journalism, would later have this editorial insight about attending studio set visits. I tried very hard, and Harry actually talked me out of it a lot, a lot more than I, I would have liked to. Um, but I tried very hard to implement, uh, because I was doing so much traveling and I was doing so many set visits, to implement a personal policy that if I did a set visit, I wouldn't review the movie. Um, not because I don't think I could be partial, but just because then the question comes up and, and, it, and the review is automatically tainted. Um, and, uh, you know, and he, he pushed back on that a lot um, uh, just because he didn't think it was a big deal. This controversy surrounding the fallout of Harry's reviews for the 1998 Godzilla and Armageddon both remind me of this pivotal scene in the Cameron Crowe film Almost Famous. The young William Miller has been flown across the country by Stillwater, the band he was supposed to write about. But after being wined and dined, he lost his objectivity, his journalistic purpose. So William calls up his hero, real-life rock journalist Lester Banks, played remarkably by the always awesome Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, man. You made friends with him. See, friendship is the booze they feed you. Is they want you to get drunk and feeling like you belong. Well, it was fun. Because they make you feel cool. And hey, I met you. You are not cool. I know. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. The movie Almost Famous had not come out at the time that Harry Knowles had reviewed both the 1998 Godzilla and Armageddon. But this advice could have helped him a great deal. As for studios and what they learned during this brief history of dealing with movie news websites, and Ain't It Cool News specifically, the fact that Harry Knowles' opinion on movies could be perceivably bought off was not that interesting for them. What was interesting was the price. And according to Eric Vespi, that price tag would be much smaller than they ever would have guessed. I think what the studios figured out with Harry was, wasn't that if you flew him on a private jet to a premiere or whatever, that he would review the movie positively. He oftentimes wouldn't. Alien Resurrection's an example. The private jet to New York to the test screening of Rollerball is another example. Um, it's, you know, and I was on that trip. Well, that was that was insane too. Um, they figured it out. The way to get to Harry was, was his screenings. He loved being sent the center of attention and he loved being the guy to that everybody had to beg to get into th something. By offering the chance for Harry to host these movie screening events, as well as appearances by actors, filmmakers, and celebrities, the studios leveraged this power to regain control of the narrative they had lost during the early, renegade explosion of internet movie news culture. That's bad enough. But what the studios didn't realize is that the leveraging did not stop here. By making Harry the master of ceremonies for these screening events, these studios gave him power. And it's ultimately what Harry chose to do with that power that would ignite part of a series of allegations launched against him by several women in 2017. One last note, 
Earlier in this episode, we talked about how Harry Knowles would accept, watch, and review unauthorized VHS tapes of pirated movies that were stolen off of servers of major film studios. As it turns out, those illegal VHS tapes were coming to Harry Knowles from none other than his unpaid writer and film critic, codenamed Joe Hollenbeck. Drew McWeenie, who was quickly becoming Harry's number one contributor at the site, even warned Harry against accepting these highly illegal cassette tapes. You know, I had a conversation with him, which was, okay, look, what you're holding in your hands are finished movies that are not released and that haven't been put out in theaters yet. Um, every one of those is a federal crime, and every one of those could get you popped. Uh, there is no cover for you as a journalist. There's no shield. You don't get to hide behind, oh, I'm a, well, you're not really a working journalist. You're a fan, and you've got stolen materials in your hands. Harry ignored these warnings and continued to take these VHS tapes from Joe Hollenbeck, who, whether or not Harry knew this at the time, was also distributing them to more people than just his boss at Ain't It Cool News. What we would later find out is that Joe Hollenbeck was also selling these tapes to people in Los Angeles in order to make a little income on the side. It was only a matter of time until the police came knocking. And when they did, Joe Hollenbeck says that part of their main focus was to get him to flip on other collaborators in this video piracy ring. And that the one collaborator they wanted him to flip on the most was none other than Harry Knowles. Part 3 of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Any Cool News, titled Almost Famous, was written, narrated, and edited by Joe Scott. It was executive produced by Christina Bell, with sound engineering by Eddie Garcia. Production assistance by Reese Allen, and online production by Janessa Smith. It features Ben Jones as the voice of Harry Knowles. Music credits include original theme music and other songs by Chester Endersby Guazda. There are also original songs by Great Freak and Expo Pulse. The song you are listening to right now is At the Movies on Quaaludes by The Flaming Lips from their fantastic new album, American Head. This episode also features archival audio and music clips from a variety of films and TV series. If I could only recommend one film from this list, it would have to be Almost Famous, perhaps the last undeniably good film by Cameron Crowe. Download The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles is produced by Mixtape Media. Make sure to visit our website at downloadpod.com. That's download with a W instead of an A, pod as in podcast.com. There you can read show notes, ask a question, and even leave a message that can be played on air. For the next chapter in this story, we will meet the crack team of writers who made Ain't It Cool News into the institution it became. We'll also follow a trio of scandals that risk bringing the site down in its first half decade and share the story of how Harry Knowles might have helped launch the careers of one of the greatest movie stars working in Hollywood today. All of this and more, so join us then when we dial up, log on, and download. Files done. Goodbye.